Yes, yes. This morning I want to do, uh, we've got um, the Gospels being looked after by by Nick and um, Phil's given us, excuse me, New Testament doctrine from Romans and so I'm having a crack at uh, wisdom literature and um, it's something I've wanted to have a go at for ages and um, I know others have had a crack at Ecclesiastes and um, so I guess what a good sermon should do, it should inspire you to go and do your own study. And that's just what it's done for me too. So I'm going to have a crack at Ecclesiastes myself. And I've found that uh, it's been one of the most enjoyable books, absolutely surprisingly. If you've read Ecclesiastes at all, you'd say, how could that be? But it really has been a wonderful thing. And so I want to share it with you today. And I appreciate the, the opportunity to even study it and have a look at it. So uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and uh, it might be a... What's the time? About 11? I think I'll split it in half and we'll do two weeks of it, maybe a bit later on. Unless you want to stay till 12. Show of hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, good on you. Get the tape and play them together. All right, so the book of Ecclesiastes. Now, I won't have time to read the whole thing and I've found... I've found I've talked to Christians lately that, that are just confessed to not reading their Bibles a lot and not reading all of it. And, and there's a bit of a theme this morning. You know, the Jenny and Elsa shared some stuff about, you know, we might have these taken from us anytime soon and we'll have it something else forced upon us. Uh, did something else. What did you say, Janet? I forget what Janet said, but um, there was other things going on. Uh, Oh, silly brain. But anyway, we've got to get this thing in us. And we really need to love it more and more. It's really concerning. Uh, the lack of importance, the lack of discipline we have at getting it in us. So you need to make a life habit of uh, of spending time in here. Some of it's hard. It doesn't matter. It's not there for entertainment or enjoyment. Uh, it's not YouTube. It's, it's the Word of God. And it goes in. It might just go in your pantry for a long time. And you might think, wonder why I had to read that obscure passage. But then one day something will happen in your life and the Lord will breathe life on that seed and it will start to bear fruit. So it's really, really important to read the Bible. Um, and we'll talk about a little bit of that as we study Ecclesiastes. So right from the start, we are assuming that it's written by Solomon, even though it doesn't say so specifically. And yet that in itself is a clue to how we should read this, this strange book. Uh, in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, Son of David, King in Jerusalem. So it's a pretty good clue. Uh, in verse 16, it says, He increased in wisdom more than anyone, which is what Solomon's famous for. And in 2 verse 8, it said he was super wealthy and he had a large harem of women, which is also something that Solomon is really well known for. And so a clue right there that when we read this book, it's not going to necessarily say what the words say and not necessarily what the words mean, or rather that there's a bit of digging to be done, but a consideration to be applied to it. And so like any book of the Bible, it's good before we crack on with it to study the background. You know, um, Corinthians is probably the most well-known. You study the book of Corinthians, you have to know that uh, they were Christians and they were very gifted Christians, uh, but they were full of immorality and they got the Lord's Supper wrong. And, and you know, that, so that's why there's a lot of those instructions in there. And so it gives some context, helps us understand that particular book. And, uh, and I think no other book needs that more than Ecclesiastes. You need to know uh, where that all came from. We need to know the difference between literal and figurative uh, uh, prose. And so Genesis 1 is one that's often people say it's figurative when it's literal. It's in a bunch of stuff like this. 
There was evening and there was morning the first day. So it's saying that there was a day, and not only was it just a day, it was evening and morning. So when you say, well, with the Lord it's a thousand years, well, it must be a thousand days and nights as well. Uh, it's very clearly literal, and people try and force it into figurative so they can adopt evolution or, or some kind of man's theory <coughs> and put it into what obviously says evening, morning, one day. There was evening, morning, second day, and so on throughout six days, and then there was a seventh day. Very, very literal, but critics say it's not. Then there's something like Matthew 26, 26. Jesus took bread and said, take and eat, this is my body. Well, a lot of Catholics, well, I guess all Catholics, because it's part of their doctrine, say that it is. It becomes those little wafers and, and the wine that they take actually transubstantiates and becomes the body and the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, we say, no, this is a figurative. It's a metaphor in this case. Take and eat, this is my body. And so we have to consider what we're reading and, and apply a bit of our, our intelligence. Uh, this book is full of wisdom because it was written by the wisest of men, right? He's famous for when God said, I'm so impressed with this sacrifice you've done and, and everything that you're, you're planning so far. What would you like? And he asked, instead of wealth and long life and things like that, he asked for wisdom. And God was so impressed, he gave him all the wisdom he could eat and then some. And, and he was just overflowing with wisdom. So he's the wisest of men, so of course anything that he writes is going to have some great insights and some understanding and some information for us that is good. But Ecclesiastes is a man detached from God. It's written by a man who might be clever, but he's not clever in the spirit. And, uh, and we'll develop that as we go on. So just describing a bit of where he's at. can't say for sure that uh, where in his life that he, he wrote this, but this describes what kind of guy he is. First Kings 11. In addition to Pharaoh's daughter, King Solomon loved many foreign women, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, Hittites. These came from the nations that the Lord had commanded the Israelites about, do not intermarry with them. They will definitely turn your heart towards their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 royal wives and 300 secondary wives, or concubines. And sure enough, they turned his heart. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods. He wasn't committed to the Lord his God with all his heart, as was his father David. Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's eyes and wasn't completely devoted to the Lord like his father David. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a shrine to Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. The Lord grew angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from being with the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. The Lord had commanded Solomon about this very thing, that he shouldn't follow other gods, but Solomon didn't do what the Lord commanded. So there's so much wisdom in this book that it's really tempting to think that all of it is true and should be taken at face value. So why is it even in the Bible then if it's, if it's like, uh, as I'm going to suggest, the, the rantings of a man who's, who's searching for meaning uh, but can't find it because he's looking everywhere except at God, why would the Lord put such a strange thing in the Bible? Well, one thing I think is to teach us what I've just been saying, to study, to teach us uh, what, what scholars call exegesis, that is to look at the word and interpret it from the word rather than come at it with a predetermined theory. This is... Uh, this is the kind of preaching that we struggle to do here. We try to stay true to it. It's, it's more difficult than it sounds. Last week was a great 
uh, example of it, how Nick taught humility from John 3. He didn't say, I'm going to teach humility, as I actually did a few months ago, and just used a few scriptures to support my theory that I came out with it. Got it entirely wrong, although the Lord honoured it, but you know, it's not the way we should do. Uh, he took the scripture and interpreted the scripture, using other scriptures in support, obviously adding some opinions, some theory, because we're just, just men who are doing the best we can, trying to stay true to the scripture. So you start with the perfect source, and from there on, you know, if you aim for the perfect, you're better off than if you, you come in with your own imperfect opinion and, and you don't hit that. And so that was a good example of uh, exege- exegesis. Uh, it's in context and it's supported by other scriptures, especially being in context. Uh, versus theorizing a concept of humility and finding scriptures to support that theory. It's it's a subtle difference, but over the years, it's like, you know, if you're navigating and you're just one degree off, it's only one degree, but, you know, over a few thousand miles, that one degree, you could be in the wrong country by the time you get to where you're going. And over the years, you might find that this opinion will start to take over and you get more and more of man and less and less of the Bible. And so it's really important as a goal and I, as I said I've failed several times because you get excited about a subject and you, and you want to preach it you know a bit about it, you've experienced it uh, but the, the goal is to do this, take it out of there <coughs> and let this be your motivation, your guide and the source of your, uh, of your subject so when we look at Ecclesiastes have a look at some of the, the background and, and how we should interpret this book 28 times he says the phrase under the sun and under the sun we can take as being, uh, as equaling secular, as equaling apart from God. He's looking at things under the sun. He's, he's observing things and he's making uh, conclusions and, and statements about them. And it's all things under the sun. Not under the heavens, not, nothing to do with uh, a God, but it's all secular stuff. Just under the sun, the things that I can see with my, my mortal eyes. It's the opposite of Paul, who would also say, if you finish just about every sentence with in Christ, you know, we do this and we do it in Christ. Um, we believe this, we believe in Christ. And, and everything is in Christ and the Lord, and, and he goes on and on in that vein. <clears throat> Always keeping his focus on that which is above, not that which is below, as Solomon is doing in this book. So this is why you might see a lot of wisdom and truth in here. For example, 10 verse 10 if the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. Well, that's true, and that's, you might want to tuck that away and encourage you with whatever you're doing, but it doesn't validate everything else. So uh, just be careful when you read Ecclesiastes. It's got a lot of truth, but it doesn't necessarily validate everything else. Um, and doing a bit of study of this, I heard of an atheist who took his life verse from Ecclesiastes 10.19. In fact, I've heard a lot of atheists seem to love Ecclesiastes. But this one guy in particular took his life verse from there. He said, A feast is made for laughter, wine makes life merry, and money is the answer for everything. And so so Ecclesiastes can be used to support a whole lot of interesting things if you're not careful. Uh, So under the sun is, is a key to understanding where Solomon's looking. Meaningless. Meaningless is the key, the the main overwhelming theme to this. Everything that he looks at is meaningless because he's looking under the sun. And so in a sense this is a great experiment by Solomon to find meaningness, uh, meaningfulness in his life uh, with everything that he's tried. And he really tried everything. And his conclusion after trying everything is he'll describe all the things he's seen and tried and conclude that they are a waste of time. 
Meaningless, meaningless, which means vanity or futility, a, a waste of time. 36 times it features in this 13-chapter uh, book, I think. 13-chapter book. So under the sun, he's looking at things apart from God, and he's finding that everything is meaningless. So there are five categories that this is the way that I'm breaking this up. Rather than go verse by verse and chapter by chapter, uh, there's five categories of writing that I've noticed he's telling us about. There's a description of how life is meaningless. So he'll describe, you know, waters run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Uh, observations of life, you know, I see injustice and I see this and that going on, and so it's meaningless. Uh, he mentions God several times, which again doesn't validate the rest of it or his point of view. But he makes mention of God, and he makes some conclusions, which uh, are all secular conclusions. And then he gives us some advice and wisdom, like some of the examples that I've just read. And we'll just do a few examples of each. So, as much as I like to read the whole book of Ecclesiastes, because I'm sure some of us, if we have read it, we haven't read it recently. Um, so we'll get started. First of all, meaningless and vanity are chasing after the wind. So I will read a little bit. Just some selected parts, just to give you an idea. Verse 1, 7. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. Verse 12. I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. Chapter 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs um, to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward of my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Uh, just a little bit of chapter 3. Uh, sorry, 2 verse 17. I hated life because work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be a wise or a fool. Yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with which they labor under the sun? All their days their work is grief and pain, and even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. What a rough sunshine, isn't he? A cheery fellow. 
And so this is what poor old Solomon is going through. And who better to compile a list of, uh, of all that a man could desire than Solomon? Because, like he said, he, he had everything a man could wish for. I don't know if a lady would want a harem of blokes. Would that be a great blessing? I don't know. Probably yeah, not. No, you're right. It was rhetorical. Thank you. Yeah. But uh, who better to compile a list and then comment on the futility of it all? Because he had the power and the, the, the means to try everything. Wealth beyond measure, the smartest man in any room, huge projects like the temple, which he didn't mention here, the palace, exploration, developing trade routes, respect of his peers and contemporaries and, and all that stuff. So he testifies to trying everything, money, pleasure, power, projects, wisdom, even foolishness. In 7.25, he says, I applied my heart to know and to search and to seek out wisdom and the reason of things and to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. Uh, and it said in chapter 2, I think, he did that even with his wisdom guiding guiding him, which gives you some indication of what does Solomon define as wisdom. Uh, for him, wisdom was trying out folly and drunkenness and things to see what it was like. So whether, whether we would apply wisdom to that, uh, I would not think so. Uh, somebody I uh, read recently sorely tempted to, to cry out meaningless and to give up and to say, this is a waste of time, uh, was Moses. He had a vision, right, of God's people. God had seen them in the burning bush. I want you to go and free the Israelites, which he'd already proved he had a heart for because, you know, he killed the Egyptian and yet they rejected him. Get away from us. Um, so he's got this heart and now he's also got a call to go and help, help God. And God says, yes, I'm going to send you to the strongest guy in the world. Go and see Pharaoh. Let my people go. And uh, the Israelites get all excited. Say The elders say, sweet ass, off you go, Moses. You, you, we're right behind you. And Moses comes back and he says, not only is he not letting you go, but you have to make your own straw. Things are much worse than they were before we started. And so with a setback like that, and then you take these people, you finally do get them delivered with a, a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And God proves himself with such wonderful things. And then uh, they get across the Red Sea. And uh, was it because there was no graves in Egypt that you led let us here, because you know, they're jammed up at the Red Sea. This is before the Lord parted it. And so uh, they say, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you led us here? And then uh, the Lord parted the Red Sea, and they get across, and uh, they're wanting some food. If only we had died in Egypt. And then 17, verse 3, why did you bring us out here to die of thirst? And on and on, golden calf, morality with the nations all around, all that. And so if you were Moses, it would be, what a waste of time. Why am I looking after these turkeys? You know, who cares about them? I'd, I'd be out of there. I would have stayed Prince of Egypt personally. But then this, there's this beautiful passage, one of the, my favourites and maybe yours in all of Scripture, Exodus 33, where he has this sweet, sweet intimacy with the Lord. And he says to the Lord, If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favour with you. Remember that this nation is your people. See, the Lord wants to, wants to wipe them out. Uh, he's, he's sort of playing with Moses about this attitude. Would Moses have this attitude or not? And instead Moses intercedes for them. And he says, uh, remember that this is, nation is your people. And the Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me, that your people and your people, unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked, because I am pleased with you, 
and I know you by name. And then Moses goes on and, and later on he says, oh, I want to see your glory. And it's just such an incredible, intimate thing. And this guy, after all these people have done to him, all the lack of appreciation, all the ingratitude, and, and they tried to stone him and Aaron, you know, because <clears throat> they were in a fix and, and they wanted him and Aaron to, to fix it. And they said, we're not God, ask God. And so they're entirely ungrateful, and yet he intercedes and he worships God. And his focus, if his focus had been on being the leader of Israel, if it had been a political or a power trip that he was on, then he would have given up. But his focus on that which is eternal, not that which is under the sun, he had his eyes on a city whose builder and architect are God, and therefore everything he did was eternally meaningful. All of those setbacks, worse than Solomon ever had, Solomon had it sweet, uh, but all of those setbacks that he had, he took them to God because he knew that they were eternally meaningful, everything that he did, everything above the sun. Imagine telling your, your Jewish mates, you know, God's going to set us free, and then you come back and say, hey, you, you've got to work harder. Uh, it would be, yeah, I understand their response. Uh, but it would make Moses give up. But he saw beyond that. I've had, a, I've related to that a little bit lately at work because uh, it's kind of a mess. It's a, it's a roofing factory, and it's, it's kind of a mess and a, and a little bit, a lot unloved. And so I've had a great time since I've been working there, sort of organising things, making toolboards. You know, there were people fighting over a tool, and I made a simple shadow board, and they were like, oh wow, like I'd invented it or something, you know. And so uh, I, I got this job of, of being a, a lean coach which sort of teaches getting rid of waste and things but the thing is so I spend lots of time uh, working really hard to make things easy for everyone else and of course you know you set something up that's nice and tidy and they just trash it they don't care they just trash it they don't follow processes and, and that and, and I just get so despondent sometimes I think oh what a waste of time and then I remember that that I'm not working for my boss, who's a good guy, and I'm not working for these guys, who are all good guys. Um, and so I drag my soul out of its default setting of, you know, under the sun and woe is me and it's all meaningless. And I remember 2 Corinthians 10:15. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And so I replaced my, my under the sun meaningless attitude with uh, Ephesians 6, 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. And so I've got this great joy and freedom of working for the Lord with my you know, it's a menial little little job in a, in a roofing factory. And yet uh, I'm so blessed that I do the little things I do for the Lord. And it has been so freeing for me and, and it's given me so much more joy to go to work and, um, and even to relate to people because my expectations of them, they're just people, you know. Uh, my expectations of them were way too high. My expectations of God were not high enough. And so... In Christ, everything is full of meaningfulness, whether it's being a storeman in a roofing factory, uh, doing the dishes, making the beds, you know, changing a baby's bottom, all those wonderful things are full of meaningfulness. Spurgeon has said, the shop, the barn, the kitchen, the workbench become temples when men and women do all to the glory of God. And uh, I believe that is true, and I've, I've proved it in my life. My heavenly boss sees everything I do, you know, and 
quite often our earthly bosses won't, and we sulk a bit about that because we want the kudos for it. But but he will seize everything we do, and he will certainly reward us. Even our suffering, not just the, the things that we do, the works we do, but even our suffering has great meaning. 2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs all those momentary troubles. Everything we suffer and, and endure, the discipline of the Lord, uh, bears great fruit of righteousness in this life and in eternal glory. And so everything is meaningful. The most tragic thing that happened to us is more meaning than Solomon has found in, in the greatest things that he's done. Lives in Christ overflow with meaning and purpose. Our troubles are achieving an eternal glory and the work we do for God will be richly rewarded. Jesus said if we give of our substance here, it will be like an investment in heaven. It's not working. It's fogging up. 1 Timothy 6.18 says, I think, Command them to do good and to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Everything we do, every good little deed, probably especially if nobody sees it, uh, because if somebody sees it, there's part of your reward right there, you know, like the Pharisees fasting in public and things like that. So maybe even the things, that, especially the things the boss doesn't see, are laying up a firm foundation for the coming age. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead, somebody said. Um, and not only for reward, but we can influence others' true meaningfulness in their lives. Second Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So our sufferings, not only for ourselves and storing up treasure in heaven and, and helping us bear the fruit of righteousness in this life, but also we're influencing the people around us as we have victory in, in Jesus, and uh, so that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. Well, the second category is that he notices a lot of injustice. I'll read a few examples. Some of these things that he says, I'll notice this. And then he makes a comment. 3.16 I saw something else under the sun. In place of judgment, wickedness was there. In place of justice, wickedness was there. Uh, 4, 1 to 3. Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who had already died are happier than the living who are still alive. But better than both is the one who had never been born, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. It's like going down the garden to eat worms, isn't it? He's just such a boor. But Elizabeth had this wonderful... Psalm 118? 18. 118. Um, I shall not die but live and proclaim the glory of the Lord. So that's, that's her hospital verse that she's taken for herself. And what a difference to this guy, right? I shall not die but I shall live because there's so much meaningfulness to, to her life on earth. Uh, I don't know if I'd cling to it so much. I'd look forward to the next one. But I think there's something noble and, and wonderful about Elizabeth's desire to live and, uh, and proclaim the glory of the Lord to the rest of us and like that previous verse from Timothy have an influence on people around her uh, to, um, for eternal glory as well uh, 8.14 he says a similar thing there is something else meaningless that occurs on earth the righteous who get what the wicked deserve and the wicked who get what the righteous deserve this too I say is meaningless 
uh, meaningless and meaningless. So he's observing all these things, uh, things like I guess we could look at now and, and, and say this is a terrible tragedy. You know, doctors who who are uh, abused and, and sued because they won't do a sex change or an abortion, and people who won't uh, get involved with with the lifestyles around us and and things like that, and are having to suffer for it, losing their their businesses and so forth. We see it all the time and, and more and more. And Solomon sees this and, and he says, well, this just this is meaningless. Why would we even bother? And even unfairness, not just injustice, but unfairness, 9, 11 to 12. I've seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no one knows when their hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, or birds are taken in a snare, so people are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly on them. And it's true. Sometimes lazy people stumble on a fortune, you know, and sometimes people work hard all their life and, uh, and have their wealth taken away unfairly. You know, life is unfair. But Colossians 4.8 says, we so, because of this unfairness and things that happen, uh, our eyes... We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. We're looking above the sun. He's looking under the sun. But we look to the heavens where there's the big picture, where, where God is who knows the beginning and the end. That's where we fix our vision. There'll be injustice as long as mortals work the, walk the earth. But we also have an advocate in heaven above the sun to whom we can appeal and we know that he will bring justice. So that's the difference. Solomon's looking at this and thinking, what can be done? We should be looking at it and think something can be done, and I will do it. I will pray, and, and the one who gives justice will send justice. The secular fatalist, which is what this guy's being at the moment, a fatalist, you know, what will be will be. There's nothing I can do about it. He cries, this is unjust, this is unfair. But the Spirit of God in us cries, as the Lord said, Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, uh, this is, sorry, this is Luke 18, 6. Uh, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice. And quickly, uh, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So God will bring justice, but an interesting little inference there is that uh, he, he does put them off. Will he keep putting them off? So there's an inference that, that the Lord does put us off. And he, he does test us in many ways to see how long will these guys, uh, how big is their faith? Will he find faith on the earth when he comes? So uh, just be aware that uh, justice will come, but in God's time. In fact, in Solomon's words in this book, he makes all things beautiful in his time. So God will bring justice. mentions of God, the third category of his writings. Um, many of us have, have pleaded with God to visit us. I, I'm sure you have, as, as I have several times in my life. Just, you know, just let, come here and let me talk to you once, you know. Get Scotty, beam you down, materialise. Let me let me talk to you face to face just once because I, I need some clarification. I need some understanding. I need some comfort for whatever reason. Uh, some, some tangible help you know, and it's never happened because the Lord wants me to strengthen my spirit and and learn what this means and, and study this and seek Him. Uh, and so sometimes He makes life hard. No, 
makes plays hard to get and he's very wise and he knows how to do that and and when I need to be blessed. But anyway, many of us have pleaded in that way. Solomon received that in spectacular fashion two times in his life, which is one reason why God was so angry with him, because you know what a what a special treat, what a privilege he was given. First Kings three verse five, he makes this big sacrifice at Gibeon after his king, a thousand animals of some fashion. And uh, God comes to visit and says, what would you like? Anything anything you like. And he asks for wisdom and it's all wonderful and, and he's with God and, and has this great backwards and forwards with God. Then in 1 Kings 9 verse 2, when the temple is finished, uh, God visits him again and, and promises him that if you know you obey my commands, there will be this great blessing. This extends the Davidic covenant. Uh, and even so... Um, this is this is what happens to this poor man. Uh, he's given all this wisdom, but it's all up there and, and apparently very little in here. And so, as mentions of God, I'll, I'll read a couple to you. In fact, the point being, he mentions God, but he never uses the term the Lord. You'll never find Yahweh or Adonai, you know, Lord with capital letters or Lord with little letters, meaning Yahweh, the God of the Mosaic Covenant, um, I don't know which is Lord, as in, you know, my boss, my Lord. He never refers to him like that in this book. He just talks about God, Elohim. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. This is true. I also said to myself, as for humans, God tests them so that they may see that they are like animals. This is one of the atheist's favorite ones. Uh, 5.2. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, you are on earth, so let your words be few. Uh, 7.13, consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? Well, saints can, it's called prayer. But the thing is, he's talking about God like he's an outsider making an observation, you know, uh, somebody who knows about God but doesn't particularly know God. So you'll never find uh, intimate terms uh, with Solomon uh, talking to God personally. Saul said famously in, in 1 Samuel 15:14, and Samuel said, what's this bleeding of sheep in my ears? Saul had gone ahead and made a sacrifice that he shouldn't have done. He was told to wait for Samuel. Samuel says, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and what is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. You know, there's that detachment. Uh, Saul, who was supposed to be the man of God, head and shoulders above the rest, you know, he's given... Uh, God put a spirit in his heart and he changed him and all sorts of wonderful things that should have made this guy an absolute superman and yet he's at this point now, the Lord your God and that was always the state of his heart. And so he needs to be the Lord our God. The Lord with a little O-R-D meaning, you know, he's my boss and, uh, and we identify him by Lord capital letters. So in, the, in this blasphemous world, you know, I guess if, if any of us go into town or, or work somewhere or hang out anywhere with non-believers, <clears throat> you'll hear Jesus' name being used disrespectfully uh, all the time. And so I've gotten into a habit of, of calling him the Lord. You know, the Lord, oh, what did you do on the weekend? Oh, well, I went down and talked to the Lord at the river. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm trying to make it as casual and just, just part of the conversation. And it is, right? It is. That's what I do. I go down and talk to the Lord. And yet there's that thing in me that says, oh, okay, this is going to get a reaction. And it nearly always does. But uh I think it's a great habit because it gives him respect in a place where he's constantly given disrespect. And, of course, as many will find, some of your friends, the more respectful ones, will apologise when they, they slip out with a bit of blasphemy or something to you. 
to which you usually say, well, I should apologise to him, <laughs> you know. But uh, I think that's a great habit. We should be free to just talk about the Lord because he's part of our life. Um, sometimes in the meetings when I do a bit of training, sometimes I'll, I'll quote the Bible or something. And in fact, I've talked about the Lord being my boss before. And so, you know, as much as I, the Lord wants me to do my best for the boss, uh, but ultimately I work for him as, as a motivation. And I tried to make it natural. And there was a bit of growling about religion in the workplace and that. Whatever, sweet ass, still do it. And I try to make, because I mean, they can use a, uh, a rugby example, they can use a darts example, a lot of darts friends. They all use examples out of their own life when they're talking about things. Well, this is my life and it's your life. So uh, just say it freely and um, suffer the consequences. And that is where I'll leave it today. Uh, yeah. So next time we'll look at uh, some of the secular conclusions he made, some of the wisdom and advice he gave, and some wonderful things about uh, about studying the Bible. Something to look forward to. Thank you for your attention. Heavenly Father, pray.